Well, Bible Church fam, if you can open your Bibles to Acts 13, that's where we're going to be spending some time in this morning. Acts 13, that's page 1095 in your bench Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. Please take that Bible. If you know someone that needs a Bible, again, take that Bible. Give it to them. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning and your phone is turned off or dead, you can use that Bible right there um, as well. wanted to remind all of us that at the end of the service following the uh, song that we sing as an act of worship, the Ushers are going to be at the back doors, and we're taking up a love offering for the shocks um, in light of our partnership with them, in light of the ministry that God has given them. Um, all right, friends, I want you to think of a time. Think of a time in your life when you've been super, super discouraged, or even just a little discouraged. Um, and maybe that's you right now. Maybe you right now are feeling discouraged about some, something. Now, here's what I want you to think of next. I want you to think of what God's Spirit used to encourage you during that time. So you're experiencing discouragement. What did God use in your life to encourage you? Uh, This should not be a secret to most of you, but if it is, you're going to know now. Um, Some of the idols that I wrestle with in my life are the idol of wanting to be in control, and God constantly reminds me, Josh, it's way better that I'm in control. The second one is the idol of approval. So you want people to think that you're neat and really cool and likable, right? Handsome even. That's like gravy, but still, right? So I wrestle with worshiping those things. And so sometimes when when that happens, I can get discouraged about things that are peripheral and not focus upon the gospel and focus upon Jesus. Well, this past summer, I was having a day where I was really wrestling through those things, especially related to outward successes of ministry, right? Josh remembers San Rosa Bible Church with 900 people, right? And Josh thought in his pride and arrogance that when he came into the preaching pastor, he would get to that point. And God said, Josh, this is not your church. You do not die for the church. Jesus died for the church but I'm still wrestling with this. And so what did God do? God brought a coffee meeting with uh, someone who the Lord allowed me to be a part of his life. His name's Darren Nelson. He's a college pastor now at a, a church in San Luis Obispo. And without him knowing it and understanding it, he kept saying things that I was like, You're, dude, Darren, get out of my head. Like, get out of my head. This is like kind of terrifying right? And I love those moments that God uses because he brings people and circumstances and situations and he uses his word to bring great encouragement to us. That's what we're going to see from Acts 13, 13 to 25. We're going to look at from this text, the encouragement that the gospel brings. Specifically, we're going to see that we should be encouraged by the realities of God and his gospel. That's what really should encourage our hearts the most. Remember, last week, we spent time in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, where the gospel went west. It now starts to go to the nations where the Spirit of God works in Paul and works in Barnabas and works in this team, and he sends them out to Cyprus where they begin to share the gospel, and a Roman governor gets saved, even though a magician who practiced magic didn't want him to get saved because the power of the gospel was was growing. And well, in the verses that we have before us, we're going to see this, this continued. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, it tells us that Paul and his companions, re- re- referring to Barnabas and those that went with them, they set sail from Paphos, which was a town 
in Cyprus, and they came to another town called Perga in Pamphylia. And it says at the end of verse 13 that John left them. That's the John named Mark. And we'll talk about him later. But for whatever reason, John became like the Jamaican sprinter and he Usain bolted, right? He left. He's out. I'm leaving. We don't know why, but he leaves. And so Paul and Barnabas and their companions, they continued to go from Perga to a town called Antioch, which was toward Pisidia. And, and, and here, what they do is what Pastor Chris mentioned that was their custom, is they go to this town, and this town is 3,600 feet above sea level, so it's kind of in the mountains. The air's a bit thinner. And the first thing they do is on a Sabbath day, They go into the synagogue, the place of worship and community and gathering for the people of Antioch, and they sit down. And then verse 15 says this. It says, after reading from the law and the prophets, this was a typical synagogue worship service where first they would get up and pray, and they would typically pray Deuteronomy 6.4, known as the Shema. And then they would have readings from the law, that's the Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then the prophets. And then afterwards, someone would usually get up and explain the text and teach the text to them. So after this reading from the Old Testament, the rulers of the synagogue, the ones who were in charge of finding the people, who would speak, the ones who were in charge of the worship service, the ones who were in charge of caring for the synagogue and its people, they send a message to Paul and Barnabas. Now, now we don't know how they knew that Paul and Barnabas were people that were available and ready to be able to share. We just know that a message is sent to them, and here's what they say. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Friends, that's what we call an opportunity. That's what we call a gospel opportunity. And so, beginning in verse 16, God uses Paul and God uses him to proclaim the most encouraging words that one could ever hear that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. First, though, in verses 16 through 18, we're going to see that what we want to be encouraged by, what Paul encouraged these people with, was the power and patience of God. Let's look at what it says in verse 16. Verse 16. It says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, again, a a way of, of getting the people's attention so that he's going to speak. Here's what he says. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God. So Paul recognizes his audience. He has Jewish believers who are Jewish just like he is, who worship the God of the Old Testament. They worship Yahweh. And then he has these people who fear God who are Gentiles. They are people from other nations who are devoted to God, who worship God, but they haven't become full converts to Judaism yet. And so he speaks to them and he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen to me. And what he's going to do now is he's going to give them a little Old Testament history lesson to prime the pump for the reality of Jesus and the gospel. Notice. He says in verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So first, Paul lets his listeners know. He's saying the God that you worship, the God that you worship, he he chose our ancestors Paul identifies here with his fellow Jews by using the word our, and what he's reminding them of is he's reminding them of the grace and the generosity of God toward them as a people over the years. 
Notice first he says that he called and chose their forefathers. That would be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be his followers. And then by his sovereign power and grace, he said that he made them great. And the idea of great there is he made them great in number and strength. When Jacob came to Egypt, the people of Israel were 70. When God led them out of slavery through Moses, they were over 2 million. That's God's greatness in expanding them and having them grow. In fact, this is what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 too, when he tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great so that you're going to be a blessing. This is what Paul is in essence saying to them as he's sharing with them in the past of what God has done. He even says that God chose to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And notice the words that Paul uses. Paul says that he did this with with an uplifted and outstretched arm. And that was used throughout the Old Testament in reference to God's power on behalf of his people. In other words, what, what Paul is saying to his listeners in this synagogue, he's saying that God chose you to belong to him. And he did this not because of who you were, but because of who he actually is. In fact, God put it this way through Moses to the people that he delivered in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 when he says these words. This is God speaking to his people. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That is, you've been set apart for God. He says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set, set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from Pharaoh, from the king of Egypt." So that's what Paul is proclaiming to his listeners, both these Jewish people and these Gentiles who are there. He's proclaiming the greatness and the power of God to deliver them and make them great, even though they don't deserve to be made great. And then Paul continues, and notice what he says in verse 18. How'd you like this? It says, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. How'd you like that if someone described that for you? You know what? Christine's like, you know what, Josh, for 40 years I've put up with you in marriage, (laughs) right? And yet, as we think about that, Paul's words there to these listeners is actually stressing God's incredible patience and devotion and endurance toward his people during the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, and if, we, and if we were to go back to Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we, we would see that when Paul uses these words of putting up with, it's out of God's love and patience for them. It's out of God's care for them. Another way to put that in its original language is God was extremely patient and caring toward his people. So it's really an act of God's patience and his love and his kindness. And he did this in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. Here's just some examples. In Exodus chapter 15 and 16, right after they crossed the Red Sea with all of their stuff, picture a wall of water on this side and a wall of water on this side, and they cross the Red Sea, and they look around and they go, we don't have any food and we don't have any water, and they start complaining. 
Don't you think someone would be like, hey, hey, do you know what happened to us just a few months ago? <laughs> but, they're, but they complain. Or Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments from God and he's gone 40 days, which is a long time. And during that time, they're like, we don't know what's going on with Moses. Aaron, you got to do something about it. Aaron's like, give me all your gold. And he turns it into this golden calf. And they start worshiping this calf and having this massive carousing party. And then when Owen gets down, when Owen, that's my son, when Moses gets down, yeah, Owen was not there. Moses was. When Moses comes down the mount and he talks to Aaron, Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. I just threw the gold together and it just came out like that. Or what about after the spies returned from the promised land and they called the wambulance, right? They started to complain to the people. The people there are really big. There's a lot of them. We can't, we can't overtake them. And the people are like, we don't want to go. And yet God was patient toward them. God was devoted to them. And God endured with them. Now, friends, growing up, I used to read about the Israelites and be like, what a stupid people. And yet as you get older, right, you start to examine your own life, you're like, I would have been right there with those guys. I would have been right there with those guys. So when we spend time with God in his word, friends, and we're, and we're listening to it proclaimed, and we're discussing it together, and we're studying it ourselves, and we're reading it, and we're meditating on it, there are different questions that we should ask ourselves. One question we should ask ourselves is, as I'm, as I'm looking at this text, is wh- where is God in the text? Like, where do I see God? Another one would be, what is God doing? How do, I, how do I see God working and acting? How do I see his character and his conduct? Uh, another question to be asked would be, where am I in this text? Like, where do I see myself? And then another question to ask would be, how should I respond? And so, in light of what we've just read so far, how should we, as Santa Rosa Bible Church, as followers of Jesus Christ, how should we respond to the great power and the great patience that God has shown us? Because you can all recall the ways that you've seen God's power at work in your life. If you are here and you know Christ, you've been saved by his mighty power. And you've seen God been patient with you in your life over and over and over again, even during the times that you may struggle with what's going on, God still has continued and will continue to be faithful to you. So the question we ask ourselves then this morning related to that is how should I respond to that? How should I respond to God's power and his patience toward us? Well, here's just a few realities for us, a few, a few ways that we can respond as we think about the power and patience to the God who has exalted us to the God who has put up with us, to the God has shown patience and kindness and grace toward us. The first response would be gratefulness to God. Specifically gratefulness for God's power and his compassion to be our rescuer and our leader. God rescued the people of Israel from the land of Egypt and then he led them and provided for them over and over and over again. God rescued you and God rescued me from our sin in Christ and he's led us to follow him and and, and to be directed by him over and over and over and over again. So our response to him should be gratefulness to him. It should even be gratefulness for God's patience and kindness in caring for us. Have you noticed that God is patient toward you even when you're not patient with him? You may be sitting here right now wondering, well, yeah, I've kind of asked God to do some stuff and he hasn't done anything. 
and yet God continues to be patient toward you. So one response for us should be this gratefulness to God for His power and His patience, because we're not for His power and His patience. We wouldn't be who we are and where we are in Christ. Another response to its power and patience would be contentment. It seems like our society doesn't find a lot of contentment, do we? There's always the next thing. And yet, and yet, from what we, we see here in the power and the patience of God in how he's provided and cared for his people, it should produce in us this, this contentment, this peace, and this satisfaction in God alone. That, that God, it, it is good that you are the one who's in authority and not me or someone else. It is good that you consistently are working and acting in my life and in the lives of others, even when I don't see it or fully understand it. God, it is so great that you would care for me and provide for me and be present with me. Help me to find contentment in you. Friends, I get, there, I get we should have divine discontentment to a certain extent, right? Like, I want to grow closer to Christ. I want my affections for Christ to be more and more, so I desire the things of the world less and less. But when it comes to Christ and knowing him and following him, we should be a people who are content in him and learn from what we saw from our previous ancestors and how they responded by not being content to what God provided for them. And so as we think about the power and patience of God in our life, we should want to be people who are content in our relationship with Christ and what he has for us and content with all the things that he's provided for us. Another response to his power and patience would be submission to him, that we we would follow God as our savior and our king, that we would take the instructions that he gives us in his word and the direction for our lives and we would actually follow him and obey him and not at times in our lives be like, okay, God, when I really need you, I'll call on you, but let me take the front. Let me take the wheel. I got this. Friends, we don't got this. And so we need to be a people who in light of God's power and patience say, I'm going to submit myself to you and I'm going to submit myself to your authority. And even the parts of your word that I'm like, I don't like that that's in the Bible. I'm still going to submit to what your word says and try to understand it and follow it because I know who you are and I know what you've done and I know who I am in Christ because of what you've done. And then another way to respond to the power and patience of God is with imitation. The idea that God's patience toward us should lead us to show patience to others. You don't have to raise your hand, but you have someone or someone's in your life that they know all the buttons to push to make you impatient. And yet, in the moments we should pause and we should reflect, and when we're thinking, this person is being ridiculous, and I don't want to be patient with them. I've been patient enough with them. They don't deserve my patience. That's where you should pray the Spirit will convict you and you pause and go, does God treat you like that, Josh? Yeah, what is God toward us? He's consistently patient with us over and over and over again. So as we see the power and the patience of God, we should want to imitate that by his grace and ask God, God, would you help me to be patient toward my spouse? Would you help me to be patient toward my mom and dad? Would you help me to be patient toward my teacher? I know that my teacher thinks like this is the only class I have, but help me to be patient toward him anyway. 
God, would you help me to be patient toward that person on the road that figures if they get there a minute before I do, they've won? God, would, would, would you grant me patience with someone at work who I'm struggling with? God, would you grant me patience with my brother and sister in Christ who we disagree on these things and yet we need to be unified in the gospel? God, would you grant me patience? Because this is what God has shown us. And so part of being Christ-like is that's what his spirit produces in us, and this is what we should pursue and seek. And when we're patient with other people and we show the power of God at work in our lives, that actually is a great encouragement to people because the gospel encourages us so we can encourage other people. But that's not just the only thing that we should be encouraged by. In verses 19 through 25, we're now going to see that, that we should also be encouraged by the provision and the promise of God. Listen to Paul as he continues talking about all that God has done for his people. Verse 19, he says, not only did he deliver them from Egypt and led them out of Egypt, and in the wilderness he prepared for them and was patient toward them for those 40 years. Notice verse 19, it says, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them as their inheritance. Friends, these seven nations are what we could call the ites. You know, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those were the people who were inhabiting the land that God was giving them. And God, in his provision and in his power and in his kindness, he gave them that land. They were able to conquer these nations. In fact, he even says there that he gave that, that land as an, as an inheritance. So Paul is wanting to highlight God's continued gracious provision for them. Paul's letting these listeners know that God was the one who gave them victory over the nations. That God was the one who kept his promise all the way back to their ancestor Abraham that they would possess land. That because of God, they went from slaves and foreigners to free people living in their own land under God's good and glorious care and protection. He then continues in verse 20 and he says, all of this took about 450 years. So there was 400 years of slavery in Egypt. There was 40 years of that wandering in the wilderness. There was about seven to 10 years from the time the people crossed the Jordan River into Canaan where they divided the land between the tribes. And in 450 years time, God continued to provide. He continued to show his power and he continued to extend his patience. But wait, there's more. Now, now look at what it says. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Again, Paul continuing to let his listeners know that God has been present and active and providing for his people. It should recall to them that after Moses and then later Joshua, God continued to provide deliverance and direction for them. See, after Joshua, the next generations were faced with the challenge of continuing to gain possession of the promised land. But instead of resting in and remaining faithful to God, if we actually studied the, the book of Judges, Judges says this amazing verse to describe the time that Paul just referenced here. In Judges 21, 25, it says, and there was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That kind of sounds like today. And so as a result of that reality, God brought discipline and judgment by allowing the nations that they were commanded to conquer to conquer them. 
And so then what happened was this would cause the people to acknowledge their sin and then turn to God for help and rescue. And God in his provision and his faithfulness, he would raise up these leaders called judges who would deliver his people. And then they would sin again and they would be conquered and they would cry out to God and God would send another deliverer or judge to deliver them. And it says that, that through this, this happened all the way until Samuel the prophet This is Paul's way of letting us know that that Samuel, he's different from the rest of the judges and that he's a prophet who who is similar to Moses, meaning he received God's word and he spoke it to the people and he faithfully cared for God's people and sought to honor God with his life. So God provided for them all the way through that time as well. But, But again, it continues in verse 21. It says, then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So friends, if if we're now zooming in again on Old Testament history that Paul has just mentioned, this is another example of God's patience and faithfulness and provision. Because if we were to go to 1 Samuel 8, we would see that the people's ask for a king was more of a demand. They went to Samuel and said, we want a king just like the other nations have kings because they wanted to be like the world that was around them. And Samuel gets actually kind of hurt about this. And then God says something fascinating to Samuel. God goes to Samuel and God says, let them have a king. Let them know what's going to happen and how the king is going to rule because Samuel, they're really not rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. And yet... God still provided for them. That's the difference between the greatness and the goodness of God and the sinfulness of a human like Josh. Because if I was in that situation, I'd be like, all right, I've been patient long enough. I'm starting over. You guys are done. I'm picking somebody else. Yet God was patient. God continued to provide for his own. And so through Saul, he continued to care for his people. But now it continues in verse 22, and now Paul's kind of beginning to, to push and climax into what he really is, wants to talk about. Verse 22, it says, And when he had removed him, because of Saul's disobedience, God removed him as king. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, this is, this is God's words about David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So God removes Saul. He brings in David and David is different than Saul. And and the, the way that Paul says this here is he basically combines Psalm 89, 20 and 1 Samuel 13, 14, and he brings it together. Where God gave them a king whose desire was for God. God gave them a king in David who was a man after his own heart who wanted to honor him and know him and obey him. And here's what's crazy is we know that David was not necessarily a good dude. But David was someone who even when he was confronted with sin would confess his sin and continue to seek and follow and honor God. And God provided that for them. Again, stressing God's compassion for his people as he provided his people with what they needed when they needed it best. 
And now from here, friends, we're going to see Paul use God's good provision of David as king to point them to God's provision of the ultimate king. Notice now what it says in verse 23. It says, of this man's offspring, referring to to David, of this man's offspring, God has brought or given to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Now, friends, notice who's active and at work on behalf of his people here. It's God. In in fact, here, Paul is letting his listeners know and then therefore us know he's pointing to this reality that the greatest giver and the greatest provider ever is actually God himself. In fact, he even mentions that, 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 that through David's line came a savior. And notice he said the savior came just as he promised. See, that, that's who Jesus is. Jesus as God and savior and king is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And so whether we went to Genesis 3 or 2 Samuel 7, or Psalm 89, or Isaiah 9, or Micah 5, or wherever else we can go, we could see that this promised Messiah and Savior and King is Jesus. And so he's letting these listeners know that God's great provision and power and patience are seen in this Savior. He's the one who promised. He's the one whom God promised would come. In fact, as as we study and look at the entire totality of God's word, we see that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament looks back on what Jesus did and forward to what he will do. And so as the Savior who's promised, Jesus is the greatest expression of God's power and patience and provision and faithfulness and justice and so on. He's the only one who can forgive and save and rescue and reconcile. What Paul's going to tell them later, which we'll see next week, is that Jesus doesn't just make salvation possible. He actually accomplishes salvation for his people. So really what what Paul's doing for for these people and then what he's doing for us is saying that God's greatest source of provision and power and patience is seen none other than in Christ. So for us, there's no other one we should go to and look to and turn to and cling to. He then continues in verse 24 and Paul says, before his coming, meaning before Jesus came the first time, he starts talking about John the Baptist. He says, John, John, John the Baptist, he had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. You remember this, but before Jesus came, the people were coming out to John and they were getting baptized, confessing their sins in preparation for Jesus' first coming, acknowledging their sin and acknowledging that they needed someone to save them. They needed someone to save them. So when these Old Testament, when these believers before Jesus came, when these people, these Jewish people were coming out and they were getting baptized, their baptism was characterized by an acknowledgement of their sin. That's a part of repentance. As you're acknowledging your sin, you're changing your mind about it, which leads you to turn from it. They were also anticipating Jesus' arrival and they were declaring their allegiance to God. That's another part of repentance where you're turning from something to something. And what they were turning to was to God's provision, which would be Jesus. That's what John was proclaiming. 
So as if Paul's letting the people know what John was proclaiming is what Jesus actually came and accomplished. And so you need to turn and to trust in him. And then Paul continues in verse 25. And he says, and as John was finishing his course, meaning as John was completing the ministry that God gave him specifically, here's what John said. John said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. All four gospels record John's words here that Paul quotes. See, John's response here was one of humility and service and submission. As the one who was the last Old Testament prophet, he was the one who pointed people forward to Jesus. So so now for us, San Rosa Bible Church, followers of Jesus Christ. The question we ask ourselves here is, how should we respond to God's provision for us and God's promises to us? We already talked about his power and his patience, but how should we respond to his provision for us and his promises to us? Well, here are a few ways that that we can respond. The first would be to humbly rejoice and rest in God's provision and promises, particularly in Jesus. Every aspect of you knowing and following Christ's friend is something that is unearned and undeserved. And I know we know that in our heads, but sometimes in our lives, right, especially if we play the comparison games to other people, there can be these twinges in our lives of, you know what, it's really good God has me on his team. And yet, as we think about who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ, we should be a people who humbly are rejoicing and resting in God's provision and God's promises because all that we have is unearned and undeserved. In fact, before Jesus came, we were a people who were after our own hearts, weren't we? But because of of Jesus, we have new hearts. And so now God has given us hearts that are now after his own heart, who by the power of God's spirit, we can actually know God and obey God and follow God and grow in our affections for God and our desire for God. So we want to rejoice and rest in what God has provided for us and his promises to us because those promises, there are some that are still going to be fulfilled that we wait with anticipation. But we also should respond by humbly receiving all that God provides. Friends, there's some of us that we get God's grace in our heads, but we still live as if we have to earn God's grace with our lives. And so when God offers to us wisdom or forgiveness through repentance, when God offers us peace and joy and strength, when God offers us guidance and comfort, there's times in our lives that we go, God, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to try to do it my way. I'm going I'm to show you. I'm going to earn it. Friends, you don't need to earn it. Jesus earned it for us. And so we want to be a people who humbly receive all that God provides. Friends, there are moments in our lives when if we're not going to humbly receive what God provides, you know what that actually is? That's actually a sign of pride. It's a sign of pride. It can be a sign of, oh, I'm not worthy, so I shouldn't accept this. And that's still self-centeredness. And so we want to be a people who God... You, you, you have provided me with all the spiritual blessings and benefits in Christ. So if you are offering wisdom, God, I need your wisdom. God, if you're offering peace, 
I desire your peace. God, if you're offering joy, I want to be joyful even in the midst of trouble and tragedy. God, if you're offering me strength and guidance, I need that really desperately. Would you provide that for me? And then we receive what he gives to us through his word, through using other people, and the way that his spirit moves in our lives. We want to be a people who humbly receive what he provides. And another re- response to, to this reality of, of, of God's provision for us and his promises to us and our response It's not just humbly rejoicing in what God's provided and not just humbly receiving what he provides, but also humbly giving our entire lives for his glory and the good of others. So he gave to us in light of what he's given to us, we humbly give to him and to others as an act of worship and love and obedience to him. So we give our words to praise God for his provision and his promises, not to complain about what we don't have, but to rejoice over what we do have. We give our words to tell other people all that God has provided and continued to provide. Have you noticed, friends, sometimes you spend time with people and like maybe you start kind of struggling or complaining and then they're like, you know what, like I... Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then all of a sudden, what turns into what what could be like fellowship and encouragement is now a complaining fest. And yet we want to be a people who who are, when we're talking to each other, like, okay, I'm really struggling because I thought I'd be here. Like, I thought my retirement would be better. But I have a relationship with the king of the kings. And I have a reward in heaven that can't be compared to what is happening here on earth. And then if I'm about to complain to you, I'm like, ah, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's true. And then we encourage each other with the gospel of what we have, right? So we give our words to God. But we also give our time and our resources to God as an act of worship. God has given us these natural abilities and these spiritual gifts. He's given us finances and he's given us stuff. And even though it feels like they belong to us, they actually don't. God has said we're all managers. And so in light of all the giving that God gives us and continues to give us, we graciously give our time and our resources back to him again for his glory and the good of others. That's part of worship. That's part of stewardship. That's part of showing God how grateful we are for who he is and for what he's done for us in Christ. In other words, We want to live with the desire and perspective as followers of Jesus that it's not about me, it's about Jesus and others. Or as our friend John the Baptist put it later in John chapter 3 and verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Friends, that should be all of our life verses. As I think about my marriage, God, you need to increase, I need to decrease. As I think about my job, God, you need to increase, I need to decrease. As I think about the church family, Jesus, you need to increase, I need to decrease. As I think about school, God, you need to increase, I need to decrease. Over and over and over again, you need to remind this to one another, I need to remind this to you, you need to remind this to me. This is our desires, at least they should be. This should be our perspective in light of God's power and his patience and his provision and his promises toward us. God, would would your glory and your greatness increase in my life and be seen through me clearly and on display just like a giant billboard driving down the highway? God, I want to live in a way that points people to you because your gospel has encouraged me and continues to encourage me over and over and over and over again. Friends, the well of gospel encouragement will never get dry. So 
go to the well. Go to the well. Go to the well. Drink from the encouragement and the waters of the gospel. That's what we've seen this morning. We've seen that we should be encouraged by the power and patience of God. We've seen that we can be and should be encouraged by the provision and the promise of God. Now, before we sing our song and then we're dismissed, if you're here this morning with us and you may not be a follower of Jesus Christ, and maybe you're like me, maybe you grew up in the church and you're like me coming to the point where you're like, you know what, like I'm a genuine false follower. I'm not a real follower. Or maybe you know you are and you're here because of someone else. Or maybe you just know you're an unbeliever, but you're curious, which is really evidence that God's actually working in your life. This morning, you've heard about the power and the patience of God from from Acts 13. You've also heard about the provision and promise of God from Acts 13. And all of those realities are seen the most in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you don't know Christ, it's because of God's power and patience that you're actually alive today. And because of God's provision and his promise, God says that you can be freed from eternal death and destruction and enjoy spiritual and eternal life forever. Now, you may be sitting here being like, whoa, like that sounds like forever. Yeah, it is. And you can think like death and, 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 and destruction, like I'm kind of a good person. And here's the thing. You're probably good compared to other people, but that's not your standard. Your standard is is God. And God's standard is a perfect standard. On top of it, God created you for specific purposes. He designed you for specific purposes. And there are seasons and times in your life where if you're really honest with yourself, you don't really follow the purposes that God has for you, which is to honor him the most to live your life for him, to represent him well, to reflect him by how you live your life. And because God is perfect and God is is, is righteous, God can't just be like, oh, I can just overlook that. The, The things that you have done to break God's commands need to be paid for and dealt with. And the hard reality is that you can't deal with them. And because it's against this eternal, holy, righteous God the punishment is an eternal one. In fact, Jesus, who talks a lot about eternal death and destruction, here's how he describes it for those who don't know him and for those who don't trust in him. Here's how he describes this. He describes eternity apart from him as outer darkness. He describes eternity apart from him as a fiery furnace. He describes eternity apart from him as destruction of both your body and your soul. He describes it as wailing, not like catching whales, like crying really loudly. He describes it as grinding your teeth. Now, I'm not sure about you, friend. That doesn't sound like I just get to hang out with my friends in a, in a place that's not where God is. Hopefully, for some of you, the light bulb just went off. <laughs> and I know that that's hard to process and hear and, and, and to think through, especially, right, if if you've never heard anything like this before. But this is what makes what I'm about to say so amazing, because in spite of that reality, in in spite of what you may deserve, here's what God offers and promises you if you trust in him alone. This is also Jesus' words. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. That's what sin does to us. It makes us burdened. But Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. That's spiritual rest, that's physical rest, and it's spiritual and physical rest for all eternity. He offers you that, friend, free of charge, free to you, not free to him. Because Jesus was the one who steps in as God and lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and then died in your place. And instead of you taking on the punishment for what you've done, Jesus says, I will step in as your substitute. I will take on that punishment. And then he rises from the dead, which shows that the payment that he made for your punishment has been paid in full. That penalty has been removed. And your response is to trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection and trust in him alone. And then Jesus says these words in John 5, 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And that's because Jesus takes on the judgment for you. So if you don't know Christ, friend, your response is to trust in him alone to free you and deliver you and forgive you. And then he brings you into this relationship with you where he will guide you and direct you and care for you until you go home to be with him. And so I, on behalf of those that do know you, would beg you to trust in Christ. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, that's already, that's already a part of your story. The best way to encourage people is to point them to Jesus. The best way for us to encourage people is to point them to Jesus. Because, and this is kind of the truth that we want to remember together this week, the good news of Jesus, both its impact and its implications and its influence, the good news of Jesus is the most encouraging reality in all of life. Not just your life, but in, every, but in anybody else's life. And so may we, by the grace of God, be encouraged by the gospel daily. May we encourage each other with the gospel. And may we encourage our community with the gospel until Jesus returns or takes us all home to be with him. Let's pray. God, we pray that your spirit would take the truths of your word and just penetrate them into our hearts. May you change us. May you transform us. May you make us more like Christ for those of us that know you. For those of us who do not know you, God, may you open up our eyes to see Christ and may we trust in him alone for salvation. God, now thanks for a song that, that you have given us to sing to you in worship. May we do so with hearts that are solely focused upon you in light of your power and your patience and your provision and your promises. And it's for your glory and our joy that we pray and ask these things. Amen. This message has been brought to you by the Santa Rosa Bible Church. We are a gathering of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We exist to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying followers of Jesus Christ who will know him and make him known. For more information, visit us at srbible.org.